Good evening. Welcome to the mumble. I find that one of the things that I like the least is the idea of of loss, of permanent loss. And I'm not talking here about the loss of money. I'm not talking about the loss of life because I guess my perspective is that one, we have an incredibly limited handle on what life actually is and we have a incredibly limited understanding of our consciousness and our spirit and our purpose and all things of that nature and then also money is just money um but I do what I'm talking about here is things that are are either irreplaceable or, or extremely difficult to replace and I'm you know speaking of uh, I think the, the book Lost Libraries captured it the uh, the way in which we the amount of literature that we've lost from the ancient times over the centuries is uh, is vast. Some authors we only really know from second-hand quotes of others and from their cataloging in various lists at libraries that have, uh, that have survived. I think there's a reason when the, the Taliban destroyed those Buddhist statues um, and that the uh, it it caused so much got so much attention is because things that have been for a long time are uh, kind of what would you say we esteem them. It, it's very odd when you see all those pictures and how the, uh, from Egypt and how the, the, uh, cities have, have encroached completely almost upon where the pyramids are, and, you know, I mean, the other side of it is that it's not for us to, to tell Egypt or the Egyptian people how to organize their society or live their lives and what priority they should put on various things um but for instance if they uh if a some you know if someone blew up Stonehenge that would be considered a a vast vast tragedy um, somewhat because obviously that would be damaging the site when 
it's pretty clear that on many levels there is uh, there's still much that for that for Salisbury Plain to to tell us about the lives of the people who were there before the present day English population. The uh, but I realise that that the idea of loss on that level, for instance, in nature, the the loss of the potential loss of the Great Barrier Reef, both as an object of aesthetic beauty and of uh, incredible human interest, but also uh, as it kind of aligns with the idea of reefs in general as a a sort of indicator of the general health of the world's oceans and how that may uh, you know the, the uh, that may indicate a incredible incredible loss to come and in sort of the way I view things I, I always I agree with people who point who look at the, uh, shall we say, Batman versus Superman and the Ben Affleck Batman having a motivation of if there's even a 1% chance of Superman turning evil or turning against humanity, then he has to be eliminated, is kind of absurd. I mean, that means that sort of, and again, we're incredibly bad at defining percentages do we mean that it's 1% for every, there's a 1% chance every day for the rest of his life, in which case it means that we're almost certainly uh, Superman's going to turn against humanity, in fact a 1% chance of something happening every day for the rest of a human life means that if within 10 years it didn't happen it would be incredibly unlikely like it would be ridiculously small the odds of something that's going to happen one in a hundred times not happening once over 3,500 you know 3,650 days so over 10 years the problem and I know yes it is likely to be 3,652 days possibly 3,653 be that as it may depending on when the leap year falls, um, be that as it may, if it's that, then yes, Batman would be completely justified because at some point in the next 10 years, Superman's going to turn against humanity. However, if it's a 1 in 100 chance between now and the rest of human life, and again, it gets complicated here because technically... At least if you understand the comics, Superman is basically immortal, it seems. He's essentially a god, and that's one thing the movies have picked up from the comics. He was initially simply a Superman, able, you know, the old radio show and stuff, able to, he was faster than a speeding bullet, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Um, and now he was basically powered up to the point where he, you know, could fly, um, had x-ray 
vision and was as fast as the flash. So, and because the speed force is essentially as fast as the speed of light, he was, um, he can basically travel at the speed of light. Um, I think in future, in like flash forwards in the comic, I think in the million, the DC one million project where basically they worked out the century in which their longest running comics would hit their millionth issue, which I think is something like the 853rd century or something like that, which, yeah, it would be 85,300 years, 12 issues a year. Yeah, basically sometime in that century you'd be in the 85,000th you'd be reaching the millionth issue. Um, Superman's basically living inside the sun. So he's essentially vastly powerful. So again, it would be like, is he, you'd want to know, is he likely to turn against humanity? at any point in the next hundred years or any point in the next thousand you know we want to be much more specific for this to work on a logical level so um a one percent chance of superman over the next ten thousand years turning against humanity one it means that in anyone's individual lifetime or a generation, shall we say, of 40 years, it's, it's, you've got to divide that by, you know, 250, and then you get an even smaller than 1% chance, and that would make the idea of stopping, of eliminating Superman ludicrous. But, and again, as we've talked about, if it was 1% in any given year, then it makes it a lot more of a logical and pragmatic idea to do. Um, And this is kind of how I view how we should approach climate change. Um, What I considerably dislike is the... the rhetoric around it which is essentially political grandstanding on a global scale um, without any real intellectual rigour behind it in terms of being how you say um, thinking, thinking it through so and we're not talking about 1% chances here if there is a, you know, a 50% chance that there will be general negative impacts of climate change across the globe over the next 50 years, then that has an economic cost. And that economic cost is calculable and can be weighed against the cost of efforts to curb that. If there is a 25% chance or or 20% chance of 
significant negative impacts that has an economic cost and a probability, and that can be calculated. And if there's, say, a 5% chance of catastrophic impact globally from climate change, that can be calculated, and that can also be weighted for the fact that if that were to occur, there would be such a significant delirious serious impact if people actually want to I mean there's a logical and systemic way to do it based on the decades of research that can be weighted and just a general consensus that can be taken into account you don't even need to agree with it you just need to look at it from a is this possibly what is going to occur how can we curb that? We don't really need to do a lot more studies or research or any nonsense or publications. We just need to look at what needs to be done and do it based on the economic weighting and probability. This, basically, this grandstanding, it's, it's, it's so such binary thinking where it's either or. Either we're going to do everything about it or we're going to do nothing about it and both of them are log illogical because doing everything about it would essentially mean renouncing modernity and sort of going, okay, we're going to essentially regress in a way that we just never agree to. Doing nothing about it basically leaves us in a position where if something does happen, we're going to be completely exposed to it you the it, uh, I don't understand it because the reason we have armies and standing armies is in case of war not because there's constantly a war but because there's a, always a possibility of a war even when a war is not happening it would be ludicrous to say that because there's no war going on right now we don't need an army we don't need armed forces etc etc so why do we do the same with regard to climate and environmental impacts? Also, on that note, what I would like to see, you know, if people are going to be adamant that there's going to be no impact from climate change and they're so against doing anything about it, if there's any cost or anything like that, do, are they okay with, if they're wrong, they have to be the first ones to suffer the negative impacts of it. They have to be, if they're wrong, they have to be substituted for someone who was trying to do something about it who's being negatively impacted. Do they, are they that sure about it that they'll bear the negative impacts of it if anything actually happens, given that they're opposing doing anything about it? You know, why, why should we suffer potential negative impacts because there's a percentage enough of people to politically be um, manipulated who are going to prevent anything meaningful being done about it? That's what I would like to know. So... With regard to loss, obviously we talk about things in nature, we talk about that Amazon rainforest, we talk about the Great Barrier Reef, we can talk about human things, the pyramids, Stonehenge, the, you know, all these different things from antiquity. 
the um, and the way I realized this was in um, I was, we were rewatching Black Panther, and when spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Black Panther, stop listening to this now and go and see Black Panther. Um, okay, there you go, that was your chance, so if you listen from here, you may hear something about the movie, oh dear. Um, so when Eric Killmonger becomes the um, king, when he defeats T'Challa and becomes, assumes the throne of Wakanda, um, he, they give him the herb that makes him the Black Panther. And he then decides that all of the, um, the garden where the herbs attended needs to be destroyed and burned. So, um, the, uh, T'Challa's girlfriend, she manages to save one for, for him, but the, but the rest of them, the rest of the herbs are destroyed, and it never gets explained where more herbs will come from. So where they'll be able to be more Black Panthers and where they're able to be more, you know, stuff. Um, and if um, any, anyone, say, challenges T'Challa again, where he would be able to make a, um, again resume the powers of the Black Panther after he dealt with that challenge. Um, and just the idea of that sort of loss and something that rare becoming disposed of is, uh, is quite, you know, saddening in a sense. I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, it, it's just that idea of beautiful things and valuable things. Things that have power and resonance of them being gone. There's, there's a sadness to that. Uh, Rewatching the movie is incredibly enjoyable, but that part, especially because they don't explain where, where more will be obtained or come from, is, uh, is quite worrying or troubling, you know, it's interesting. Just those little things that can sort of, even though you've seen something, you can kind of still, before, can kind of still strike at, strike at you a little bit. Um, I think in a lot of the rings, Tolkien captures it beautifully when 
they talk about and the, the thing about the Lord of the Rings and this is the thing that the movie didn't fully capture um, is that the the elves knowing that if the ring is destroyed the power in their rings that keeps sort of preserves some part of what once was in both Middle Earth and in Valinor beyond the sea um if if the ring is destroyed the power will go out of their rings and what had once been will be gone there they will their lands will start to fade they sort of by the power of their power of the rings and by their presence the uh the what once was is still maintained there in, especially in Rivendell and in Lothlorien um, it's not quite clear with regard to the the Havens and Curdan what what happens given that Curdan gives his ring to Gandalf and Gandalf sort of uses that power in going about Middle Earth and setting flame, a flame in the heart of men to oppose Sauron um, but in talking you know um, they talk about how things will fade and be lost and the hobbits are quite sad but you know um, Gandalf sort of I think Gandalf um, reminds them that the memory you know sort of these things even though lost are still beautiful for having been still of value and the elves are willing to give up these things for the fact that opposing Sauron and Sauron's fall is worthy of them diminishing and them losing what they have in Middle-earth and that's where when um, and again, I guess, spoiler for The Lord of the Rings, if we're still doing that sort of thing, the book and the movie, I guess. Um, when, when Frodo offers Galadriel the ring in Lothlorien over the, uh, the mirror that they're looking into, the, the pool that, that shows visions, um, And she refuses. The move that I must say, the movie captures that brilliantly. That is one thing that the movie, particularly the Fellowship of the Ring, captures incredibly: is the nature of evil and the power of the Ring, and what must be done to that. Resisting it is in itself a heroic act. And when Galadriel resists it, 
and says no and says I will, and then she knows at that point uh, having re refused it there she is a uh, an, an el elven maiden again um, she says I will go into the west and remain Galadriel and the reason she says she'll go into the west is because it seems that prior to this her role potentially or at least accompaniment of Fenor and others of the elves who basically rebelled against the rule of the angels in Valinor and marched into the into Middle-earth to battle to battle Morgoth the first Dark Lord of whom Sauron was only a lieutenant um, they in doing that she the way back into the west was it seems bad to her and all who had uh, all who had gone on that journey against the will of the uh, the angels the but having created beautiful places on middle earth they were willing to sacrifice them for the sake of ridding the world of a great evil. Um, I think we, we lack a perspective because we think so short term and unfortunately the way in which this world is structured is increasingly forcing us into this short-term thinking. Um, part of the problem is the, pro the cost of housing, basically, and the significant commitment when people are taking out 30-year mortgages for houses. There's a sort of basically saying that potentially your working life is going to be taken up with the, you know, it's going to be taken up with paying for a house, basically, and with the mechanics of everyday life, which doesn't leave a lot of room for long-term thinking, given the basic necessity of housing and then if you have children the necessity of being able to adequately 
essentially adequately educate them really is the, the challenge even by living in an area where public schooling is good which again comes at a cost or by being able to send them to private schools which again comes at a cost and which does tend to be in the better better areas um, the the biggest and so the challenge here is an incredible proportion and focus of our lives is directed towards things that are short term or basically become long term as in constant projects because you're basically obtaining something over the cost of 30 years or you're undertaking the sort of 18 year project or plus of educating your children not and again we must be distinct not raising your children but their education which is the challenging aspect and I think with regard to all of this we need to think very radically in terms of both our focus and also the way in which we direct our children and teach them about how the world is and how the world works and sort of really for their own happiness almost direct them towards a more uh, a less uh, simply direct them towards thinking about these things not just accepting them sort of as a static thing as they are but actually direct them towards a way of consideration of these things that's much more sort of puts them in a much more realistic perspective where they actually have an awareness that hey these things are kind of not entrapments but they are things that will bring you into a place where your mindset has to be directed towards them so don't engage in them lightly and this is again where the economic cost of living this is one of the things we have talked about before is kind of a caution towards society. It becomes a means of keeping people in line simply because the commitments that they're making are so of such a scope that the potential of putting them in jeopardy is a vast risk to just the basic day-to-day -day mechanics of, of life. And it becomes a caution, a check against any of this stuff. And therefore, I think there's an element of understanding that I think at least understanding that that is the 
the exchange that's being made and being under no illusions as to what is occurring. And I think this is where the there is a sort of naivete that exists in older generations and the quite simply because that wasn't the exchange when they were being when they were making those decisions it wasn't as stark or a steeper cost for housing and there are means around it and if the uh, cost of housing I know that there are many places in this country at least where the housing cost is either static or falling and that may do something for affordability, although there are consequent flow-on effects from housing prices falling as a signal, which are that people tend to spend less with their discretionary spending, which then means that businesses earn less revenue, which means that they therefore either cut workers' hours or shed staff, so the overall pay and earnings start to fall back to the point where then it creates a cycle where spending is declining simply because people don't have the, uh, what would you say, they don't have, as consumer confidence falls, that becomes a bad sign for the economy in general. And a decline in housing prices can be a prompt towards consumer confidence falling. So, it becomes, a, sort of housing prices become a very difficult thing. And I think any intervention in them is going to have to be very mechanical. In the to really be impactful and effective, and it may have to be some, literally something like a a second city further away from a main capital, where the agreement is that you will move here and undertake this commitment perhaps the land for instance the land is free um, but the and then you just pay to build a house on it and then in whatever way that means you bear the the impact of that you know, maybe that's a more manageable way of getting people into the housing market. A less onerous way. Though, of course, 
by nature, if that is the case, then wages in that area will probably be lower by, by the nature. What I think has happened is that you basically have entrapped society in a certain ratio of housing to earnings and it had been in a certain way and then by limiting the amount of land that was being released the uh, the the ratio shifted from what it had been to a new level you know somewhere between it gone went from between three and five times earnings to something like five to ten times earnings and it becomes very difficult to reset it in any gradual way without some sort of radical disruption that sort of resets that relationship um, that is quite a challenging thing I mean I guess one of the ways would be to have massive restrictions around the percentage that can be lent for a property so for instance if instead of having a 10% deposit you needed a 33% deposit that would probably have the effect of reducing the cost of housing because there just wouldn't be that many people who could say get a 33% deposit on a million dollar house but also what that would probably do is reduce economic mobility because you'd have probably have a region of inner city those tony inner cities to suburbs where the people of had sufficient wealth to pay a 33% deposit and therefore those houses were kept their what would you say kept their prices but the then around that area there would be a distinct drop because people just wouldn't be able, there wouldn't be enough people who could afford a say a 33% deposit on a million dollar house. So those start having to drop in price in you know hundreds of thousands of dollars each hundred thousand dollars being thirty three grand, you know, they might have to a million there might be million dollar areas where suddenly the price has to drop to eight hundred thousand or seven hundred thousand for it to and then because those areas are dropping and they are not deemed nicer areas, the less you know, areas deemed less nice are dropping. But of course you'd have people who were underwater on that because they might live in a area that's relatively that's a poor area where they had say taken out three hundred thousand dollars of debt to get in there and now their house, instead of being worth $350,000, where, you know, as we can see, people would need to have like a $116,000 deposit, they, the house is now worth 
you know, $250,000 at most, and that would be, a, you know, simply because maybe an $80,000 deposit is tenable, maybe it would be worth even less. And you could just see a massive decline in house prices. And that would impact poorer people more. So, really it becomes very difficult to have any sort of intervention beyond some sort of vast infrastructure project with guaranteed employment that would draw people away from the existing capital cities and perhaps give them an opportunity to create a life in a, a new city somewhere. So. And that sort of in the past has been an intervention that's occurred. And it would be interesting to see if something like that was proposed again. Beyond that, there is a... Uh, there is a scope for really, if they, this continues as the status quo, you really sort of have to raise children as educating this as to a stark reality, which is that you don't want to be flippantly pursuing home ownership. This may be a something that ends up sort of changing the market as it is in that there may be a shift there where basically being very aware of the cost of children and the cost of owning a home people choose to forgo both for a large part of their lives and that's just people being rational economic actors it's I think there have been times when this has been viewed as a moral failing or choice and quite simply it's a uh, it's more of a economic reality of what kind of life you're going to live based on really stark reality um, especially when employment becomes even for people with significant qualifications much more fluid where it becomes much more much less static and uh, there's fewer guarantees of regular or consistent employment even if you're quite skilled doesn't mean you can't earn a lot of money you just may not have the reliability of income that banks tend to look for when they're going to offer you a you know when they're assessing you for a loan but even so with all this there will be 
you know, the human condition doesn't change. We need places to live. We need to be able to have food and drink. We need to be entertained. And I think I put entertainment as a need, not a luxury, because when I talk about entertainment, I'm not talking about necessarily spending $200 on tickets to a concert or what have you. I'm talking about we have a need to recreate and to have leisure and that may simply be being able to go for a bushwalk or having a park to be active in or something like that. We, it may be reading. All those needs don't change. We, Sometimes you get a view of something and it just strikes you. The any sort of anything that hints of undulation in terrain of mountains in the distance. We don't have mountains here. We don't have mountains. We just have small hills. But even the hills, because we don't have mountains, speak in a certain way. And there's something epic that goes on in one's soul when you get a glimpse of, of that and it takes you beyond the day to day and it really has an, an incredible effect upon the mind I, I think one of the things my lack is, is not spending more time in nature um, whether in the ocean or up in the hills and I think I I must in some way redress this the so the challenge becomes what kind of society will we have if and I think it speaks to the disconnection which is that there's much less of a corporate project in terms of the society when we can't even offer similar similar goals to most people without not just struggle but kind of a foregoing like if you're going to say to people you are going to if you if you have this life or if you arrange your life in this way even though you work hard and are reliable, you will have a very hard time having a, a reliable school to send your, or a good school to send your children to, or of really having a harmonious community lifestyle. That doesn't sound like an enticing project for most people. If you're literally going to say, you if you buy into this system, you're just going to have to scrap and scrape to for a patch of land and a sort of decrepit house or a small house, and you're going to basically have decay or gloom around you, and you're going to need to you know you're, you're 
the project of raising your children is going to be fraught because of the low socioeconomic environment and the way in which it's all structured. You're going to also have to probably drive for a significant way for any services or things of benefit to you. I mean, there's not really a lot too bad, you know. And it's understandable if people opt out from it. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I've got. Cheers. Wakanda forever.